Meredith Elliott Powell, and you are lucky enough to be listening to From the Heart with Ed Hart. My guest today is my dear friend, Meredith Elliott Powell. Meredith and I met in 2011. I mean, I can actually tell you the details. Um, my, my mind works funny that way, though. I was attending my very first day on my job as the director of the Center for Family Business at Cal State Fullerton. And the conference was at the University of North Carolina in Asheville. And Meredith was one of the uh, few speakers that we had who came in and just um, dazzled me with her personality, her, the way he, she engaged the audience, obviously her knowledge and her wisdom and the message that she shared. I soon knew that I wanted to bring her out to California to speak to our members. And I don't think it was a matter of just a few months before she was coming out west to speak to our family business members. And that was nine years ago. And my members still talk about Meredith in that presentation. And so we're way overdue to have you come out again. Uh, she is a business keynote speaker and business growth expert. Uh, she works with companies of all sizes all over the world. Uh, we have some mutual clients that we've worked with in the past as well. One quote that I will share with you in the intro, and then we'll just kind of jump right into this, is someone wrote, I've never seen a presenter go so above and beyond. Your energy is amazing and your techniques work. How she got 1,200 people up, active, and engaged was incredible. <laughs> And I've never been in an audience of 1,200 where Meredith has spoken, but I've been in smaller audiences where she's had the same impact. Um, she's one of the top motivational sales speakers in the country. She's a top sales expert to follow by uh, LinkedIn. She's authored six books. We'll certainly talk about at least one or two of those today. Um, she's regularly featured in Forbes Magazine, Fast Company Inc., Investment News, American Banker, just to name a few. You'll see as you watch and listen to this interview today that she is definitely high energy. Hi, Enthusiasm. Meredith, it's so good to see you today. I know we've been connecting through this pandemic already and even before, but it's just really great to, to see you and, and be able to hear your voice on a regular basis. Welcome. Thank you. I'm, I'm uh, looking forward to being here. And I forgot that the day we met, it was your first day on the job. What a great memory. Yeah. What a great, um, great career you've had since then. You know, I've been very fortunate and worked with some amazing people and, and the Alliance of Family Business Directors like Cindy Clark, who ran yeah. the North Carolina program when you and I met, have remained some of my closest friends. In fact, I was texting 10 minutes ago with a couple of the guys that I met uh, that day and we just <laughs> remained friends. So thank you for the impact that you've had on me and just your friendship and it's just been really great to, to spend time with you. I wanted to obviously get into the, the, the core of our, our focus here today is going to be all about this crisis that we're in today. I'd love to hear about your take on how things are impacting our economy. I mean, obviously we know the big picture stuff, but you've got so many smaller clients as do I and some bigger clients that are heavily impacted. I'd love to get into that a little bit uh, and also talk through that. What, do, what are your perceptions and thoughts about where we will be when this is over, what the economy will look like? You're an expert in that topic. And so I, I'd love to hear your opinion but first, let me take you back a little bit. Let's go way back. Tell us about Meredith the child. How did you, where did you grow up? What's your background? <laughs> I'd love to just hear things I don't even know about you. Uh, where you grew up and, and just a little bit about your family life growing up. Yeah, that, and that is way back. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on now. Yeah, <laughs> um, I grew up in a little town called Uniontown, Pennsylvania. It's a little coal mining town. Um, a Southern the, Bell. I, I just yeah. No, no, no. Right. In the southeast, uh, in the southeast corner of Pennsylvania, it was a uh, it was a great place to grow up. Just a small town, very outdoorsy type of area. I'm the youngest of uh, four children in a Catholic Irish Catholic family. My mother always apologized <laughs> that she only had 
four children because everybody around us had eight, 10 and 12. (laughs) Yeah. And I grew up very much in a, um, in an ethnic rich, uh, community because it was coal mining um, country and steel country. It was full of um, full of immigrants, so it was kind of a di- very diverse, uh, you know, very diverse background. So I had a pretty um, happy childhood. Grew up, you know, doing a lot of fun things until I was about the age of twelve or um, uh, thirteen. My family's pretty riddled with um, alcoholism, and my uh, grandfather died when I was about six. My father died when I was twenty. Both my brothers and I lost my first husband as well as my brother-in-law and my cousin all to addiction so somewhere after around 12 the wheels sort of started to fall off um fall off the bus of what seemed idyllic uh before then but those lessons have really fueled where i am today sure and i i think that uh you're one more example of most of the most successful people that i know in my life present company included with you have come from some sort of a a difficult uh upbringing and uh Maybe that's why it's taken me a little bit longer to, to hit what I deem as success. I, I had the golden spoon in my in my mouth my whole life, and still at age fifty six, I still do. So uh, I challenge. I, I don't know. I I, I do company. I do think there's I do think there's something to being challenged with adversity sure. uh, early on, whether it be whether it be family related or 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 whatever. I do think that it's. Um, I do think that there's something to that that um, that fuels either breaks you or makes you right. I agree. So I yeah. mean, we need to just give our children more challenges <laughs> so that they'll be stronger as adults. I've often thought that maybe you need to do more like this so that you'll be more challenged later. So no, that's great. And I, I appreciate you sharing that. I know that can't be the easiest thing in the world to talk about. And I think that we all live in a society where someone in our lives or even oh, family, yeah. I've got a little bit in my family as well. I've dealt with addiction and, and alcoholism as well. And I've seen it tear some people apart. So, um, but yeah, it's definitely a challenge. Do you, um, you talk about age 12 and the transition there, obviously, early on in your life, like most of us, and I know you well enough to know that mentors and looking at examples of other people is something you've always done. Can you talk about some of the earliest mentors that have maybe helped you through those challenges or even as you launched into college and into your career? Yeah, you know, I had, um, you know, now that I, now that I really look back on it, I mean, you know, one of the biggest um, influences um, in my life, even though, even though he died of alcoholism, was my father. Um, my father was a very successful uh, businessman, so I really learned work ethic and, um, and things from him, but my father was also a very kind man. Uh, he really used his success in business. He took care of a lot of people in our community. We didn't even find out until um, until after he died just how much um, he took care of other people in the community, how many people owed him money or owed him favors or things. And that always stuck with me that you could be successful and still balance it with being genuine, kind, and giving. And then the other was really um, my mother. I don't think that I would be here today if it was not for her strength. I mean, as much tragedy as my family has experienced, my mother taught me two things, and that is to be incredibly strong, that no matter what happens, you get up the next day, you put your pants on, and you go to work, and you make no excuses, ever. 
And that can be a downfall, but it's a good <laughs> lesson to learn. The other is she taught me a sense of humor. She said, when things look really bad. So, you know, you talk about, you know, it can't be easy to talk about. If you get too close to me and get to know me too well, you'll find I have a big sense of humor about the tragedy that's hit my life that some may find a little not too colorful. But my mother really taught me to laugh in the face of um, adversity. And I don't know how people survive it without a sense of humor. Yeah. And so it's just early on, I didn't realize it at the time how much I took from them. But I really look back and I think um, I really my, my parents had a, I dedicated my first book to um, to my mother because the other thing she taught me was um, uh, why other people were taught not to talk to strangers. My mother told me it was my responsibility talk to, to, include, to talk to everybody. Yeah. So if I went to the pool or I went to um, nursery school, even she made me go play with the kids who didn't have friends. And she taught me that people needed to be included. And um, again, I did not care for that my entire childhood, <laughs> but it's been the greatest lesson. I mean, I never would have met you. Like if I weren't outgoing and didn't feel the responsibility to connect with people, I wouldn't have had those lessons that really changed my life. Sounds like we've had very similar upbringing as far as the <laughs> lessons were from our parents. Cause I, you yeah. know, again, didn't have the challenges necessarily that, that you and many others have had, but the lessons learned from your dad of, you know, generosity and hard work and your mom of inclusiveness and laughing it off. I think that, that that's a really good balance right there. <laughs> yeah. There are a lot of challenges in our lives. And, you know, obviously, as I teed this up at the beginning, we're going through one as a, as a, as a world right now. And one of the things that I've enjoyed in, in uh, to say I've enjoyed in the same sentence as this crisis, I, I almost want to edit that out. But one of the things that I have found some comfort in through this is conversations with you and people like yeah. you who, can help me stay grounded and centered and laugh. And I think every conversation, either whether it's even a text message with the LOLs yeah. or a conversation, you and I can make each other smile and laugh. And I think that's one of the reasons why we connect. And I think a lot of it has to do with the work ethic and the personalities that we were given by, maybe by God, but also by our parents and our upbringing. So, now yeah, I, I, I definitely comment. agree with that. Yeah. And I think, um, I think sense of humor, I think it's fine to say that you found something to enjoy in the middle of this, um, sure, of this, uh, this pandemic, because I don't know that you can, if you, if you only looked at the stuff was wrong and you didn't find the sweet spot, I don't know that you're going to make it through. Oh yeah. Well, you and I also have another thing in common and that is we play golf. Yes. I've learned through golf that, uh, golf like life. And I, one of the things I do really love about golf, and I, I say it tongue in cheek, that it is serious is for me, it, it really is representative of life. Golf, yes. if you hit a bad shot into the woods, you have a few options at that point. You can sulk, you can pout, you can throw your club, and my wife will tell you that I usually do all of those <laughs> things. But you can also then look at what's your next option. Do I wanna take another risk and maybe make things worse? And maybe sometimes the risk can make it, make it better. Mm -hmm. Or do I just punch it back into the fairway, take the extra shot and be safe again? And I think in life that is so similar. You know, we take risks, we make mistakes, and what is it after the mistake? What do we do after we fall down? And uh, when I try to think of that in, my, in bigger terms when I play golf, I have typically a better round because I don't yeah. let bad stuff get to me as much. And uh, I love when I hit a bad shot and then the first thing I think about is laughing. Yeah. Because that doesn't happen very often, but I do like when that happens. Yeah. I'm going to tell you that. Into golf? I'd be curious about your, your golf background. Uh, so again, well, again, being the youngest of, um, of four children, my mother figured out that she was home every weekend with the kids while my father would go to play golf. Hmm. And, um, and she thought, well, this boy, something isn't right with that. And she'd gotten the other kids old enough to go to the pool for the day and they could go by themselves. But I was enough behind that she kind of had to take care of 
me and she figured out that the um, quicker she taught me to swim and the quicker she taught me to hit a golf ball, the, the faster, she, she had. the more free time she had. So literally, I don't think I could crawl before she threw me in the pool. Nice. And, um, and I was hitting a golf ball by the time I was six years old. Now you would not see that reflected in my game, but, um, but, uh, but you know, it, it, it represented freedom for my mother. Nice. Did you, part of it for me was that time with my dad. No. When I was 12, he said, you know, I'm at a point now where we can give you golf lessons or private batting lessons or music lessons or whatever. I went back to the way. Did you say golf? Yeah, right. You go do it with your buddies. And I want to spend more time with you. So yeah. yeah. For me, a lot of it early on was just time with my dad. And then I fell in love with the game. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I'll be playing golf with my husband now. We'll go out and play nine holes um, after work or something. And it just it reminds me so much of being on the golf course with my parents because a lot of times my father in good weather would call my mother about five o'clock and say, you know, grab the kids and let's let's go to the golf course. And, um, and we would play nine and have dinner. And it's just a really great memory. That's awesome. I love it. So many lessons to be learned. So we could go there all day long and just talk to family. <laughs> and I'm sure we will do that again and again in future conversations. We take it down a little bit more serious. I, I, I don't ask this question all the time, but I've been thinking about this and in, in, in contemplating what I was going to ask you. I'd be curious, Meredith, to, to hear what breaks your heart. What is it when you think of something that just really breaks your heart? What, where do you go? Wow. Um, it, um, you know, something I guess that really breaks my heart, I would say the biggest is that when, um, when people really, I will, anything that happens to children or to dogs breaks my heart. Yeah. Okay. So let's just, but I figure that's universal, right? <laughs> Maybe. I yeah. feel the same way. But that <laughs> yeah. I mean, I just don't, I just don't understand how anybody could ever hurt an animal or ever, um, ever hurt a child. But I'll tell you, um, I was, I was speaking to, I get asked every year for Rotary Clubs to come speak to their, um, they do a big conference for challenged youth. And these are kids that come from the wrong side of the tracks and, um, and they do something for leadership skills. And they asked me a couple of years ago to come out and speak to them and I showed up and, the, um, and they were asking the kids to stand up one by one if, um, if the kids came from a broken home. If they had anybody in their family from addiction, if anybody in their family had ever been in jail, did, you know, their parents divorced, had they lost a sibling? And one by one, all these kids really stood up until over half the room wow. was, you know, on their feet. And what breaks my heart about that is that those children will see that as limiting them. And, and it's not, so I don't, my heart doesn't break by the tragedy that happens to us. It's broken by the fact that we Tell believe us. that that's a limiting belief. And it breaks my heart because I was that same way too. Right. I thought, because I've had everything. I've had family members in jail. I've had, you know, blah, 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 all those things. But I believed for a while those were limiting. Yeah. And you're yeah. right. I think it's more about the story we tell ourselves than actually what happens to us. Because I think so many people could take those experiences and just say, well, I don't have a shot. I've been yes. told I can't, I've been told you're no good, I've been told you're stupid, I've been told this, 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 and this, and, and yeah, the, the success, and I think that is going back to the initial comments about those who have grown up with a lot of challenges rebound because they begin to not believe the lies that are told about themselves, whether they're really things that somebody tells you, or eventually it's, it's, it's hard not to internalize and think, well, what have I done? But when you can crash through that barrier and realize, you know, no, that's not me, that's not who I am. 
and make different choices, that's when the success begins to come. So thank you for sharing that. I know that that's, a, and again, wasn't necessarily planned, and I don't ask that of most of my guests, but somehow I realized I could, I could probably talk to you about it. So. <laughs> well, I think it's, um, like, I think it's important. Um, I think, like, one reason I told you you could ask me anything is because um, it's been very helpful for me to have people talk about mentors, but people who have been through challenging times that I perceive as very successful to know that they've come through challenges helps me understand that I can move through mine. So I think the more that we live in a world where we don't make excuses for our adversity, but we're open to share our adversity, we're going to help everybody be more successful. Yeah, I've heard uh, successful coaches share that. Uh, their their favorite experience as a coach was the day after their team lost mm. because that's the day the team is teachable. Yeah. So when things are going, Phil Jackson, I've told this on another podcast a while back, Phil Jackson and the Chicago Bulls one year won 72 games, which is at, at that point, the record since then has been eclipsed, but um, that means they had 10 losses. And he says the day after those 10 losses were the best practices of the year because <laughs> the team felt teachable. So yeah. certainly it's an adversity or when things are not going our way that we really can, if we humble ourselves, can learn the lesson that we're supposed to learn. How has that transition and that heartbreak, if you will, early on in your life and, and what breaks your heart with you know, people mis, you know, um, misusing or, or abusing, if you will, children or, or dogs? How has that launched you into what you do now? Yeah, it's um, the biggest thing that it's launched me into is that, um, you know, we talked about childhood and things. I grew up in a family, and I'm betting, Ed, you did too, and so many of your listeners, where you didn't talk about things, and you certainly didn't reveal any any challenges that you had outside of the home. Yeah. That wasn't something that you did. Appearance was everything. And, um, and what has transpired for me is I've been very, um, in the last probably 10 to 15 years, very open book about my life. Um, very, I published a book called, um, with my sister called The Real Dope on Dealing with an Addict, How Addiction Saved My Life. Um, very public. I've spoken quite a bit about um, uh, our story. And so as much as I like people to know me for the challenges and the successes I have, I've really tried to be very open with the adversity that I've gone through because I think that's helpful to other people. Yeah, definitely. I think we learn best from our mistakes and I think even better sometimes from the mistakes of others I hope yes exactly. a lot of mistakes that others have made that I've learned from that hopefully knock on wood that I won't have to learn yeah how'd you first get into speaking and writing you've mentioned already that you've written and obviously wrote early on when did you think that, was it in college was there someone that you said wow that person's a great author or a great speaker I want to do that as well how did that begin from I, you know I didn't even know this was a thing and I certainly yeah. um you know and I so basically I had no idea <laughs> right right and when I turned um when I turned 40 years old I felt like it was really a defining year um in my life I feel like 40 is such a great age I mean yeah. you're old enough to be taken seriously but I was young enough that if going out on my own didn't work out, I could probably be hired again by a corporation. And um, uh, so at 40, I went out on my own as a business strategist. That's really what I am by training, helping companies figure out the strategies they need to be successful. And um, I had a lot of luck with the companies that I worked with. And slowly, people like Cindy Clark, our friend, would say, would you come speak to our group? And, and I, I did that, not even knowing that speaking was something. And somebody said, you should go to the National Speakers Association. And I went to one of those meetings and it just like opened my eyes I to what the, cool. yeah, yeah, I was like, wow, I had, I had no idea. And I've always, um, I've always been very passionate about um, learning 
from people and then putting that learning into content and sharing it. And 2008 hit, which was kind of a bummer year for everybody, but I wrote a book in 2008 called Winning in the Trust and Value Economy mm -hmm. and everything really took off from there. Yeah. Yes. And that, how does you tell me about your process for writing? I write, I don't have the success in the background and the history of writing as you, but um, I do love to write. The hard thing for me is I've had a couple of friends who are authors. One good friend of mine that I grew up with who's in Canada and she's a, a very famous author in Canada and writes a lot yeah. of fiction. And she says that she disciplines herself. Tish Cohen, by the way, I'll just give her some love. Yeah. Tish uh, told me that She'll just discipline herself to write at a certain time every day. She goes, even if you turn on the computer and stare at the flashing cursor for an hour and then turn it off, you discipline yourself that that's your time. Do you do that as well? Or are you more like me where you write more just when you're feeling inspired? Um, I, the, I, my very first publisher um, was awesome. And she told me that the way she told me to write, and it's, I've used it ever since, is she said, pick a topic that you want to write about. And, um, and then she said, um, write down all the things that you would want to tell me about that topic. Mm -hmm. Just brainstorm out, out on the sheet of paper. She said, walk away for 24 hours. Come back 24 hours later and put how you would want to tell me in order, in a natural order. Now, those have become your chapters. Walk away for another 24 hours. Come back and commit to write for 30 minutes every day. Um, and just don't edit anything, just write on that particular um, worry about subject. The order and just write whatever comes to mind. Mm -hmm. and, and that's pretty much what I've done with a really good um, uh, editor. But if I don't discipline myself like that, it doesn't happen. Yeah. Like I've got a book that I'm working on right now that I just scheduled myself next week to get back to the discipline because it's not happening because I'm not disciplined around it. Yeah. Yeah. I think we all, when we heard this stay at home order was coming, so, oh, wow, all the writing I'm going to catch up on, or the reading and the Netflix and I saw this great little meme yesterday, if that's what you call it, that just says, um, I've finished Netflix. Yeah, right. <laughs> I've seen everything there is to see. The only Netflix I've watched at night, my wife and I like to fall asleep to The Office because it's okay. funny and we know what's coming next. So I don't have to be looking at the TV. Thinking. I can close my eyes in here and just kind of chuckle myself to sleep, which probably explains why I wake up happy most mornings because I've laughed myself to sleep most nights before. Uh, I will watch a little of the news, but not like last not, night. Not, not, not much. My husband and I have, have uh, been watching Frasier, which is probably too old for many well, of your um, audience to remember. But it's just, and it's exactly for what you said. It's just funny. I mean, yeah. it's just, it's just a reason to laugh and to let go and to wind down. Yeah. And it just, it does, it clears our minds. That's for sure. What would you be doing if you weren't writing and speaking? What uh, what were you doing before 40? And what would you what do you think your life would look like if you weren't? Well, well before 40, um, before 40, I was a um, I was a banker. Okay. And I um, I wouldn't be doing I wouldn't be, be I, yeah. No, wouldn't especially especially not right. Uh, you know, yeah. especially especially yeah, not right now. Right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So if I had to do it all over again, if I were willing to go back to school and to do it all over again, the one thing I've wanted to be more than anything, and I don't know, maybe I'll still do it, is I've wanted to be a therapist. I always wanted to be a therapist. You'd be great at that. And, yeah, and um, and I don't know why I never did it, and I guess to some degree with some of my coaching, I am, but um, but that's really where I would have put my time and my energy. I would have done the same thing, but I grew up with a therapist. My mom, was, <laughs> yeah, she was more. She counseled women on their careers, but you know, it, it was easy for her to bring her work home and, uh, <laughs> and practice little, therapy on you. Feel a little psychoanalyzed by mom, but that's all right. I I, I loved it so. Um, what would you say, I, I, it's almost a stupid question to ask because you've already shared a little bit about this, but let's take you more into your career rather than your childhood for a minute. 
And what would you say was one of the biggest challenges that you've had in your career? And then what did you learn from that challenge? How did it shape you into who you are today? Yeah, um, boy, that's a that's a really um, that's a really good question. Um, let me see. I know exactly what it is. Let me see if I can explain it um, okay. correctly. Is that um, when I I had more belief in what others thought of me than I had belief in myself, and um, and people pleaser. Yeah, and and what that did was, especially I worked in a lot of businesses that were very male dominated, sure. and I'm old enough that um, that when I get into them as as a female, it wasn't. So a lot of the guys were not happy I was there. Um, some of them were ecstatic and really in my corner and believed um, in me. And I focused too much energy on the people that didn't believe in me, forgot about believing in myself and gave no credit to the people that believed um, in me. So the biggest lesson that I've learned from that is that um, if I will just take the time and listen to my inner voice and believe that I can do it, I can. And I need to seek out people at every, um, every venture of my life that, that believe in me and surround myself with those people and, and just forget about the naysayers. Yeah. So that leads me into the big successes then. Obviously you had that, that aha moment or moments where you realize like life isn't about what other people think of me. It's about what I think of me because that's mm -hmm. really where I'm gonna be able to do things what successes and maybe who, who has helped you through some of these things that, that if you look back, it's the old interview question, you know, tell me your biggest weakness, tell me your biggest success that you're most proud yeah. of and why. Yeah. You know, the, um, the, the, really the biggest success was, and something I still think is a, just a major, um, uh, I don't know, flag in my career, but I was 35 years old, 36, when I was given the ability to be a strategist for a regional bank that was about to go nationwide. And it was a great opportunity to be given to somebody who was young with not a fantastic um, uh, education. And it really all hinged on that on that turn of starting to focus on doing what I was good at and focused on um, on 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 making progress rather than worrying and adjusting myself to what other people thought. I've always felt that performance is power. And if I got in and I just did a job really well, in other words, I played the game before I tried to change the game. And because I played the game, yeah, as soon as I played the game incredibly well, as soon as I was able to beat all the naysayers, then I got to make the rules. And that's how at the age of 36, I wound up for a large financial institution writing strategy of how the, you know, of how the organization was, was, you know, going to move forward um, in the sales arena. And I never would have gotten that opportunity. I feel like we get so focused on what other people think where everybody is attracted to somebody who does a good job that can do it well. Right. And if you, if you want to change the rules of the game, play the game, win the game, and then you get to decide what the game is. And that has, I'm going through something like that right now. Oh, I love it. I think that's great advice because you have to, you know, the, the journey of a thousand miles take, starts with a single step, the journey of becoming the best at something. Tiger Woods wasn't always the best golfer. And, you know, Mike Trout wasn't always the greatest baseball player. They had to practice. They had to put the time in when no one was watching. Yeah. That's really what people don't realize, they always talk about, you know, someone's an overnight success. And I heard a great quote recently where they said, well, the reason they call it overnight success is overnight while you were sleeping, they were working. That's the overnight part of the overnight <laughs> that success. Is, that's they didn't right. wake up and go, wow, I'm the greatest baseball player of all time. That's right. <laughs> They're working harder than anybody else.
So you, like I, made a transition at about age 40. I, was, I told myself um, when I turned 40 that I was going to stop doing work I didn't enjoy. Not that I was going to just have fun and play every day the rest of my life. But I thought, you know what, if it's, if it's not fun and not enjoyable, I'm probably not going to be very good at it. And so I was fortunate enough at age 40 to land a position that I had no qualifications for to become a general manager in minor league baseball, which I only did for three years. But that really shaped who I've become in the last 16 years because it's helped me realize, like, you have to enjoy what you're doing. So someone's 40 years old in that 35 to 45 year range now. They're in a career that they don't like. They maybe feel like they're trying to please other people. Maybe they're doing it because that's what mom and dad want them to do. I see that in family business a lot. Oh, sure, yeah. What advice would you give to that person who's contemplating that change? Yeah, you know, the biggest advice I give to people who are thinking about a change, and I think you should do this whether you're thinking about a change or whether you're not thinking about a change, but look around you and look at the people whose lives you admire, their business and their professional life. They look successful and happy at what they do professionally. They look successful and happy at what they do personally. And they look, um, they look healthy and happy in their own life. Find those people and then go have a conversation with them. Because I've always found that if you, you know, what's the age old you ask for, um, if you ask for advice, you'll find your career. If you ask for a job or a career, people will give you advice. So I think interviewing and learning from people who, um, who, have, who seem to have it together. And what you'll find from that is that they don't have it all together. But they found the balance of what makes them happy. And they figured out a way to balance both their career you know, and their personal life and, and create it into something that they want. Yeah you need to change your beliefs or change your actions. And sometimes yeah. the belief needs to change. Sometimes it's the actions that need to change. I've found more often than not, it has to be a combination of both. I, 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 I would agree. I think that, um, I think far too often we, um, we think career or business should give us more than it gives us. And that's why I said really find people who are, who are balanced in all three. They're happy with themselves, they're happy with their personal life, and they're happy with their business. And what you'll find is there's trade-offs in all three. I, I, I just want to add to that that the biggest yeah. mistake I made until I was 40 was... Um, was that I thought, like, everybody kept asking me what did I wanted to do professionally. And nobody was asking me what I wanted to do with my personal life. Mm. And you need to really ask yourself both questions because those two need to meld together. I mean, it may sound exciting to travel all over the world, but, you know, if you want to get married, you want to have children, maybe that's not, you know, maybe that's not the best option, right. you know? So um, if your family is important to you, travel is not you know, not, you know, maybe, maybe shouldn't be the, you know, the pinnacle, but you need to think about just bigger, bigger than your professional life. Yeah. When I work with my students or I work with clients as well, we go through goal setting. We talk about smart goals of the different process. You know, we talk about don't let your goals conflict with each other. If yeah. your goal is I want to be the best dad, but I also want to travel the world and make millions and see every city. Doesn't mean you can't do both, but sometimes the goals are a little bit mutually exclusive. Exactly. You've got, yeah, you've got to find a way to make it all come together. So I'm going to ask you a hard question to answer. Okay. Mm -hmm. We all think about success, something that we all want. So let me ask you two questions. Question number one, are you successful? Yeah, I would definitely say so. How do you define that? That was my second question. Yeah. So um, I, I feel like I'm, I'm doing the work I love. I'm, married to a man that I love. We have a healthy, successful 
um, life. We give back to our community. We have wonderful kids. And I think I would define it the best of even the good, bad, the ugly. I wouldn't change anything about go. my life. Yeah, uh, that's great. That, that, I love that answer. If somebody mm -hmm. were asking me now going forward, are you successful? Yes. Why? I wouldn't change anything. You know, would I have a little bit newer car or would I be a little healthier? Sure. But those are things I can control. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing like I, you know, there's, um, there's no, and I'm not really looking at anything. It's funny because, you know, with this pandemic, um, we've, we've traveled all over the world. My husband and I have to take an active vacations. And we were both talking about the fact, and we said, you know, if, if it were over, it's okay. I mean, you know, like, like you're, you're, um, you're, you're happy with, you're happy with that. Yeah, exactly. I feel the same way. I think that's a, a great transition into my next question too, is, how has this pandemic shaped you? I know we were gonna, we talked before this call about getting into, you know, really the, the bulk of this conversation will be leadership within this time frame and then after. But you personally, other than, you know, you're not traveling right now, other than maybe doing what I've been, I spent a lot of time on Google Earth. It's crazy how much time I spent on that now. It's like, boy, I miss Ecuador. Oh, I'm gonna go there. And the next thing I know, I'm looking at the city where I visited 25 years ago. What, yeah. How has this shaped you? You know, it's funny. I mean, my world used to be getting on planes and living in airports, and now my entire life was is in within two miles of my house. I mean, and it doesn't bother me at yeah, all. Yeah. So I think I feel like the things that um, that have done to shape me is, um, you know, I'm, I'm a little turned on right now in the sense that um, it's invigorating me. It's gotten me. Um, it's gotten me excited. My sister and I are um, are very close, but we're polar opposites. And I was just talking with her this morning. She's got a lot of anxiety around this. I mean, she is. She's very cerebral. She's um, uh, she she's a big thinker. Um, uh, and so this is, 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 she's struggling with it. I apparently am vapid and do not think at all because <laughs> hey, I am just, great. I'm yeah. just running, I'm just yeah. running as fast as I can. The mistake I've been, I've made in the last month, I have been busy, not productive. So as I look at May, it's really about, um, it's really about, uh, about being productive, but I'm really, I'm excited about trying to help people during this time. I'm doing a lot of volunteer work for SCORE or with small businesses that are struggling um, right now. And, you know, it's painful because people are in a lot of pain, but it's, um, but it's exciting to help them to begin to think, um, you know, to think differently. And I feel a little bit like, I don't know, maybe I'd gotten a little lazy and, um, and this has really called me to a higher level and I need to get it together and, um, and think bigger and, um, and create more and, and, um, and, and do more things. I'm, I am a passionate believer that we will emerge incredibly successful, right. but what businesses do now really matters. So I'm really focusing my time and my energy on producing that type of content to make that happen. You talked about a book that you wrote back in 08 about the, you know, I, I, I'm going to paraphrase the title. I've read it and I have it on my shelf back at my office at Cal State Fullerton. And I talk about it with a lot of people and that is shifting from more of a transactional economy to a trust and value economy. What do you think the shift is going to be next from this? Yeah, so interesting. Um, so interesting that you would say, because I've really been thinking about that. So it's, um, you know, I'd named 2008, 2010 trust and value economy because it really it really became that, I, you know, I'm fooling around now with the possibility that this is the evolution economy that you've got to evolve 
or you're not going to make it that nobody is going to be doing business, even if you're in one of those essential businesses that is thriving right now. You know, I work with yeah. a lot of telecommunications companies, a lot of companies in healthcare. And I was speaking with one of my CEOs this morning. He's having his two best months ever, you know? Um, but I don't I care. Feel guilty sometimes. I know I have yeah. clients <laughs> as well who they're like, yeah, yeah. want to be this busy. Yeah. And, um, and so, but I think you've got to evolve. And so I think that um, everybody's going to be different when this is over. Our supply chains will be different. How we, um, how we do business, how we think about things will all be different. So for right now, I think it's the fact that um, you've got to, even if you're successful right now, you've got to think about how your business will be different. And I'm not talking about being six feet apart because I think all that's going to go away. Right. The moment We're doing everything on the computer as well. Yeah. You know, yeah, so I'd really divided this crisis into three phases. And phase one is you've got to sustain the business. Phase two is that you've got to grow the business in the false normal. And the false normal is the six feet apart, wearing a mask. So all that's going to go away as we go into phase three, and that's growing beyond the crisis. And that's what I'm really starting to call the evolution economy, is that how are you going to evolve the business and continue to evolve it? Sure. Um, and in order to um, in order to remain successful, but more importantly, remain relevant, I think the challenge is going to be to remain relevant. I think that's a great way to put it too, because I know I spend a lot of my time with the family businesses and others that I'm working with on a really a regular basis now, from the comforts of my office here at home for the most part, and phone calls and an occasional, you know, socially responsible six feet away in the parking lot conversation. We've done a couple of times with the masks and the gloves and all of that. Yeah. You know, yeah, we have to do that. But I hear a lot of clients say, boy, I can't wait to get back to where we were. I can't wait to just, you know, pivot back to the track I was on. And I'm sure you're saying the same thing that I'm saying. Look, we're not going back. Yeah. Hopefully we'll learn from the lessons that, and the progress and the successes that we were having up until February or March. But the good news in this, like you said, it, it takes us back to the beginning and the theme of this conversation really is that the challenges that shape us and grow us into what we can become. I think there's going to be, I think, I know there's going to be individuals and companies out there and probably already are some who are going to literally thank God for this having oh, yeah. because of what it did. Yeah, they lost their company, but look at what happened as a result. Look at the collaborations, the partnerships, the personal growth that comes, the families that are being saved through this right now. Yeah, there are, there are tough times and I'm not going to be you know, blind to the fact that there are, you know, women living in abusive homes right now. I've heard that, that domestic abuse is way up as a result of mm -hmm. this, where are you going to go? Um, people are losing their jobs. People are losing their homes. And it's, it's, it's horrible. Um, but the good news for hopefully most is that we will take those lessons and those challenges and grow and learn from them and not put ourselves back into those situations that we were in before. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's really, like you said, we started this conversation with adversity and I think it's sometimes hard for people who haven't um, really had heavy challenge in their life to understand how, when you come out the other side for most big challenges, people are maybe not grateful for the challenge, but grateful for the lessons that, you know, that, that came out of it. And I think it's as challenging for people who are waiting for things to get back to normal as, as people who think that things will be radically different. I was talking with a group of speakers and there are some among us who think we're never going back into, into rooms with crowds and things. And I think you're, you're crazy. We're creatures of yeah. habit. I mean, the moment, 
moment that we're allowed back into a restaurant, we're all going to crowd there like there's no yeah. tomorrow. Look at the beaches. I've already got I mean, my so, path planned out. I just don't know what the days are yet. I know what I'm doing. I just don't know what they're doing. Yet. Yeah, yeah. So it's um, so there, you know, so there will be pieces that will come back that will be so much sweeter now because we so took them for granted before. Right. And I hope that we don't get back to that point again. I think that a lesson I learned coming out of the, the recession we had, you know, a decade ago or so was I have, I think for the most part, learned to really appreciate what I have because I saw so many lose so much then. And again, now, what are you hearing? You, you say you, you consult with CEOs and organizations right now. What are you hearing from them at two parts? Again, I, thought, I like a lot of two part questions. That you yeah. Part one, what are you hearing from them about what they're learning and what they hope to become through this? And more importantly, I'd like to hear from you what you hope to become for your business, for what you're doing. Yeah, you know, the, the biggest thing um, is, that, uh, is that most CEOs that I work with have been surprised how productive remote working has been. Like they've been so proud of their teams that they really mobilized so quickly. I mean, they went remote without being prepared to yeah. be promote. I don't have Some any. Rest the other day, they went from 60,000 associates working, working in office buildings around the world so 10 days later, everybody working at home. Yeah. Days, yeah. Days. So how quickly they've been able to do it, but then how well it's worked. And, and I think what that's going to change um, for most of them is to be more open to a remote workforce, which is going to change hiring, which is going to change onboarding, which is going to change um, training and things like that. So it's, um, you know, uh, and, and the, and either um, most are trying to figure out, what is next trying to pose the questions right now as to what do we look like um uh a year from um you know a year from now um you know some of the businesses that are struggling to um hang on are questioning what they sell and what they offer Mm -hmm. and maybe those types of things need to be um changed we're really working on making sure that they are clear on their core values who they are and what they want to provide but maybe be open to the products and services, um, you know, the products and services that they sell. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> I've seen a lot of collaboration between companies that are completely diverse, <clears throat> excuse me, in, in their products and their services. And it's been fun to see them collaborate and come together and now starting to talk about what the future can look like for them. Yeah, so and I think the, yeah, well, I was just going to say, I think the innovation, like I've got a couple of companies that I work with that have completely blown up. I mean, I've got one that's in the events industry. They put on large sporting events. They book right. the hotel rooms and everything. So even as the industry comes back with no crowds, it doesn't, you know, their, their businesses. Yeah. yeah. So it's watching the two women CEOs really be innovative and creative and come up with ideas of how their business is going to change has really been impressive. What's inspired you through this? What have you seen that's just been wow for you? You know, I think the um, I think the biggest thing is just um, uh, I haven't talked to anybody who is negative, anybody who is thinking of themselves first. Yeah, um, I haven't seen that at all. Not at all. I mean, businesses that are successful. I've been blown away by how much um, CEOs are doing just to take care of their employees. I feel like it's really brought out, um, you know, the best in us. So I feel like I've been inspired by just the generosity and kindness and the lack of selfless, um, the lack of being focused on your own survival. Yeah, I've seen that too. I've been uh, really touched by 
when I talk to my clients, there's a few in particular, and I interviewed a, a gentleman and another woman yesterday who are in the, the nails industry and they educate and they train, you know, nail workers, you know, working in manicuring and so forth. And it tells you how much I know about it. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah I, get, I really get my nails done a lot. But one is a woman who runs a salon with her family and another is a gentleman who trains technicians. And, you know, they're in a human touch industry, which is completely shut off. You know, can't, we can't get our haircuts. We were joking before. Yeah. How, you know, I had a dream last night that I got my haircut and I woke up. Nope, not so much. So, but they have transitioned into being completely outward focused. I think what this is doing, and without telling that story, because I told it yesterday, I heard it yesterday. What I've tried to teach my kids and tried to teach my college students, yeah, now we're all playing with our hair, right? Yeah. But um, is even before all this, think about how I can add value first. What is it that when I come into a relationship with someone, not necessarily what's in this for me, but what's in it for them? How can I add value? Because you go on a job interview or have a conversation with someone who you, you talked earlier about, you know, if you want to transition from one career to another, go talk to people who are doing it, not to pick their brains. So they'll tell you, so you can take all this information, say, thank you and move on. I tell them, go buy them a cup of coffee. Yeah. Ask them to tell you their story. People's, I, I think I may have learned this from you years ago. People's favorite word is their first name and their favorite story is their own. So yeah. Meredith, tell me your story is something you've Meredith would love to hear. And, and I think that's why I like doing this. Yeah, absolutely. Stories. Um, yeah, it's really inspiring for me to, as, as you've said, to see the good that's coming out of this. Yeah, so, it's a, it, and, and, and on such a mass scale. Right, exactly. We're reading these stories, we're hearing and seeing hero stories. There's a local news channel here in Southern California that leads off the news every night and every day whenever I watch, and that's the one I choose to watch a lot, is let's hear the hero stories, what's happening out there. Yeah, we all know the the numbers. We know the pandemic Pandemic is still spreading. We know the number of people getting sick and passing. We know the unemployment numbers continue to skyrocket and they're going to get worse before they get better. But to hear these hero stories, I think the world is in need of, of being inspired. That's what, without a doubt. I, I, um, I so agree with that. So I wanted to make sure that we talk a little bit about um, shifting gears. How's this for a completely illogical <laughs> segue? I work in family business. My work is, is almost entirely with family-owned companies, and you've recently collaborated on a book that I've read, and uh, I'm excited for the world to be able to read. Tell me about that collaboration. Tell me the title of the book. Tell me how it came about, and I'd like to go into a little bit of a dialogue with the time we have left about family businesses and how they can learn and, and appreciate what you're doing. Sure. It's called Who Comes Next? Leadership Succession uh, Made Easy. It was written with a brilliant woman, Dr. Uh, Mary Kelly. She is a former naval intelligence officer and an economist. Um, Mary and I are great friends who'd collaborated. I guess we started collaborating a couple of years ago because we found out we were both working quite a bit in the leadership space and found ourselves being pulled in to a lot of questions around succession planning. The very fact that um, that people don't have their talent lined up in order to take over the organization and business. But what was really unique about our perspective was Mary and I did not focus solely on C-suite 
succession planning. Our belief is that succession needs to be throughout the organization, that it should be a continual process. You know, the very fact that you, you're, you know, if you hold on to an employee two to three years now, you're lucky. The average CEO has a lifespan of less than um, five years. I realize it's longer in, um, in family business, but, um, but there are critical positions in every organization. And most people don't do succession planning because they think it's complicated and we wanted to make it easy really simple so that if you were a fortune 500 or a small mom and pop you could do succession planning for your organization yeah i asked gary ridge who's the chairman of wd40 who i've had the fortune he also has come and spoken at our center a couple of times and and he and dr ken blanchard actually are speaking uh, at a town hall online that we're doing tomorrow for the center and I've, I've just been very very blessed to get to know both those gentlemen yeah. but gary in particular when i interviewed him on the podcast a few months ago I asked him about succession planning and he says, I don't believe in succession planning. I believe in building my bench. And yeah. Everybody from, from the person who walks in the door and I'm paraphrasing him, of course, but the person who walks in on day one to the CEO, which was him at this point, it's just building a solid bench so that when you're ready to put the next person up, they're prepared and ready to go. And that's yep. what, that was the message I got as I read your book as well is that, you know, yeah, it's not just who's the next CEO, Who's the next HR director? Who's the next financial analyst? Everybody should be thinking in terms of, of who's next. And I really like yeah. it a lot. Yeah, it's um, and you especially think about it in a you know in a time um in a time like this. Right. I mean, if you've got somebody in a critical position and they got sick or they had a family member who got sick, who's there to take their place? I was working with a client who's um, just took over the business from her father, and um, she's in her early 30s. And when I brought up the idea of succession planning to me, I mean, I think she looked at me and thought I just hired the wrong coach. Hmm. But I really pushed back on her because I said, you know, you good, bad, or ugly. There's maybe a reason that you can't. Um, you know, you can't be there. You've got to have people in place to, um, to, you know, to take over those positions. Yeah. What's your advice if you were sitting down, listen, I know this is hard because there's every family business is different, but as you were writing the book with, with Mary and as you've gone through working with clients on succession planning, do you find yourself giving more of the same advice over and over to the two different generations we're talking about, the now generation, the, the man or woman running the company, and then the person who's coming up, and whether it is the next CEO or the next HR person or the next financial analyst. Are you starting to see patterns, things that you're finding that, well, I'm saying this a lot, it must be true? Yeah, I would say um, number one is that um, the CEO is running the company, is, um, is trying to shape his or her successor to run the same type of company. Um, and it won't be the same type of company. It'll be a very different type of, um, of company. Um, when I'm speaking a lot to the younger generation, kind of discounting a lot of the wisdom that sits with the CEO or the C-suite professional that is there now, there is a lot to be said for time in the seat and to have weathered um, the storms and, um, and being, able to, um, you know, being able to capitalize on that. The biggest theme that I see, though, is that um, is really under understanding um, how to build it throughout the organization and helping organizations start small so it doesn't have to be an overwhelming um, process. And the last thing I'm going to say is that far too often this is put into an HR function and it really right. needs to be a function that is there at the CEO level. Yeah. And organizationally. Yeah. If I'm, if I'm looking at transitioning my next person in my department, that's not an yeah, HR probably should be involved and certainly the, those above me making decisions, but 
when my dad worked for Beckman Instruments out here in Southern California, he spent 39 years there. And his last probably 15 years, he was a VP of what they call personnel, which has now gone to HR, now talent acquisition, talent management. I don't even know what they call HR yeah. anymore. But one of the things that Dr. Beckman himself told my dad when he moved into that role is, you know, right now, 10% of your time is to be spent finding and grooming your successor. Yeah. And so succession planning was something that he was thinking 15, 20 years before he retired back in the, he retired in 91. So in the seventies, he's already thinking about my next hire needs to potentially be the person who can take my job. And I think a lot of people feel threatened that way. I don't want to groom them because what if they do the job better than I do? I'm out on the streets. But I think that those who get it understand that part of what you're doing is really grooming the person. Who's I, I think you made such an important point. I was talking with a C-suite professional this morning, and one of his biggest problems right now is he needs to be leading the company into the next wave of what they're going to do. Yeah. But the people that report to him are good managers. They're not good leaders. So they're not capable of taking any of his role to free him up to do with what's next. And so you have to think about it being threatened by that. You're actually not only you think you're holding on to your position, but you're holding the whole company back. I'm, I'm glad you said what you just said. Um, tell me real quick before we wrap up, I got two more, two or three more questions. I always reserve the right to ask one last question. Okay. But um, when you think of leadership, who do you think of? Let's, let's go public and, and persona that we may know of or celebrity or somebody. When you think of a great leader, who do you look to? And I'm not asking about your political background or beliefs, and I'm not asking about your religious background or beliefs necessarily, but just, is there some leader that, that most of us know about or a great author, for example, that you look at as, but wow, this, this person really gets it. Do they have to be alive? No. Okay, good. <laughs> Cause I'm struggling. <laughs> I'm struggling with a famous, um, I'm struggling with a famous leader right now. In fact, I feel like we need one to come up from the ashes. Yeah. Um, and, and only because, I mean, you can, you can, you can certainly say positives about around both sides of the political aisles um, down yeah. now, but there's also a lot of negatives um, down, um, down both sides. And, um, and I'm not a big celebrity um, yeah. person. But, um, celebrities as leaders. I don't need a yeah. celebrity to tell me what to think. Yeah, but um, but really, the person that that I think of so often is Winston Churchill, and 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 for for a lot of reasons, but a couple I'm just going to give you is number one that um, he had the confidence in his own beliefs. Back to kind of my own challenges, he didn't allow other people to the that I mean the things that were said about him were horrible, but he kept to his plan. But the most important thing is that um, in order to achieve the goal, he was able to bring people together who were very resistant to coming together. He collaborated with people who were not necessarily his friends, such as, um, such as Stalin. And he was willing to give up the star seat to both Franklin Delano Roosevelt and, um, and Joseph Stalin in order to achieve the goal. And um, he really sacrificed himself in the, um, in the long run. And I think that's unbelievable. Um, that's unbelievable leadership. And we need that right now. I love that. I like to ask that question because it tells me a lot about the person I'm talking to as well. If you look at somebody, I also think that persistence is something that has been very yeah. prevalent in your life. And obviously he's famous for the never give up, never ever give up. Yeah. And, um, if, if there's ever a line that, that just, just reeks of persistence, it's that. So, all right. Well, there's a lot more that we could talk about and I'd love <laughs> to just keep you online and just keep talking. And then maybe after I hit pause or stop recording, we'll talk some more, but, um, 
unless there's anything else that's just kind of on your mind that you wanted to make sure that we shared, I, I know I've covered a lot of the things that I was hoping to cover yeah. today. Um, I would just say that for people to, to keep in mind that we will move past um, this crisis and to, and to emerge successfully, you've got to think about um, collaboration, focus on building the team around you, and most of all, just keep moving because through progress is where you'll find the opportunity. Excellent. I appreciate that. No, that's true. I mean, that's, uh, I love your optimism. I love that, uh, I, like you, I feel like we're, we're certainly, I mean, yeah, we're going to come out of this. How we come out of this is largely up to ourselves. Yeah. How I look at this, you know, if I'm going to look at this as, oh my gosh, I'm never going to be the same and life's horrible and it's easy to feel bad for the bad things happening in the world. And we should, because that should be, you know, the reason we don't touch the hot stove is we know it's going to burn. So we don't want to have that in our lives. But it's, it's easy for us to hopefully learn from not only what we're experiencing and the loss around us, but especially the loss of, of loved ones that are going through so much more than you and I are going through right now. Yeah, so, absolutely. So as I wrap up, we've spent about 50 minutes or so together here this morning. Um, the name of the podcast is From the Heart because my last name, but I think I would have probably called it that either way, because I'm just a really big believer. I, if I want to learn about Meredith, I can go on Wikipedia or Google and type in your name, and I have, and read your bio, and I have, and talk to people who you counseled with and worked with, and I've done that as well. But ultimately, why we do what we do is, is more intriguing to me. So my final question, Meredith, every time I do this podcast is, what's in your heart right now? What's in my heart right now is that um, I hope that people um, can find can find and focus on what they can control and um, and try to put out of their mind the rest. And if you can't use the two pieces of advice my mother told me, and those are that the fastest way to get over your own troubles are to focus on, um, on somebody else's. And if you're really feeling down, go outside for a good walk.